Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got with me Andy Christin. And it's really interesting to find somebody else in the finance community that's written a book. So today, you can find out about Andy and find out all about that book that he's written. So, Andy, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. So, Andy, tell me a little bit about you. What's your background? So I'm an FCCA. I, um, I've i never worked in practice. I'm obviously qualified a long time ago uh, with a business called Booker, who you might have heard of, the Booker yes. Prize. Cash and carries. carries. That's it, yeah. Yep. So food distribution. Mm. And um, I got involved in setting up a, a big business there for a tender that we won. And quite like that idea. It's quite quite fun. But uh, it was a bit boring once the business was up and running. So I, I went looking for something else. <laughs> Found another very similar business. And I think in, in total now I've done about 11 startups, which I really enjoy. They're really good fun. Yeah. And also sort of scaled down the size of business that I've worked in. So I had about 10 years in, in quoted businesses, 10 years in sort of family-run or owner-run businesses, some quite big. And then for the last 10 years, a, a fractional CFO or a part-time finance director or whatever we call ourselves these days, working for businesses that are, I don't know, 10 to, 10 to 100 employees. And I, I really like that. I really like being involved in the, in the sharp end, advising people who actually go out and make changes in the afternoon after a conversation in the morning. Yeah. And, so as, a, as a fractional CFO, how many businesses do you, are you dealing with at any one time? I guess maximum has been about eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously some involvements are greater than others. Yeah. At, at the moment, only five. So, but they're all quite significant, um, you know, yeah. two days minimum per month, probably each. Yeah. So – I think it's a really interesting model that's emerging, that there there are more and more fractional CFOs, which I think means that startup businesses are getting the right sort of financial help when they need it. Because I think a lot of have suffered in the past from really getting too big before they've brought in the appropriate people on the grounds they can't afford them. But the, I think the that still, still happens. but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would say definitely – I'm brought in later than I should be rather than earlier. I can't think of one where I was brought in earlier than I should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, yeah. it's at the point where the, the owner really can't keep up with the Yeah, you've got to uh, realise. keeper and yeah, no strategy and yeah. pricing is perhaps not, not, um, not what it should be. Yeah. So a fairly decent career as a, as a CFO, then as a fractional CFO. Why write a book? I don't know why I wrote it. <laughs> there was um, there's a few reasons, I think. Um, I mean, it, it is a marketing piece. I mean, there's no getting away from it. It's, uh, yeah. it's a way to be one up on the competition. It's actually, it was great for me to, to actually think about, okay, so what is it that I do? What is this process that I go through with, with businesses? Where do I start? You know, where are we trying to get to? And sort of distill that into a, a four-step method. Mm. But yeah, it's it's also they say it's a great business card, but it, it's a great way for people to get to know you, 
without actually taking up a couple of hours of your time. If they don't like you and they don't want to get involved with you, then neither of you have wasted wasted a visit somewhere. I do a very similar thing with with our mentors, realising that people want to get to know folk before they they think about doing business. So I I try to make Mm. sure I record at least one podcast with every grow CFO mentor. So at least somebody thinking about mentoring can go and listen to this particular person and get some idea whether there's some chemistry there. Yeah. They're talking about the right sort of things. I I guess the book is a very, very similar idea. So I suppose we should tell the audience what the book's called. Yes, so it's called The Profit Mindset. The idea of the title, I think, was was really because I think a lot of businesses, smaller businesses, are quite focused on revenue. Mm -hmm. And this sort of second step in the book is, is, you know, all the revenue is great, but it's diff- there are different types of revenue probably in your business and probably not all of it is bringing you a profit. So right. it, it's trying to trying to bring the, the sight of the, of the owner from the top line down to the bottom and understand which activities are really making them a profit. So that was step two, but you said it was a four-step process. So let's start at the beginning. What's step one? Yeah, so in, in step one, I, I like to build a model or something very simple with just a few variables, a few cost drivers, a few few revenue drivers, just to sort of uh, typically on a spreadsheet. I am an accountant, aren't I? So it would oh, be, we love spreadsheets. Um, absolutely. Let's face so, it, we'd probably each much be, rather be talking to our Excel spreadsheets than talking to each other on a... On a <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. But um, yeah, no, it's just, just something simple, a simple model. So I, I was involved in a transporter business, car transporter business. So a classic number that we always had to understand was the load factor. On average, how many cars are you getting on the back of each load? It's not the only number you need to know. But if you've got, say, eight numbers that you're really on top of, you're probably covering all of your revenue drivers and most of your cost drivers. And yeah. some are from the outside. But also for the business owner, it's quite open, eye-opening that, oh, okay, if I then change this bit by a few percent or whatever, what does that what does that do? So... Yeah, just building a, a simple model, really. Simple so it's essentially a, an economic rather than an accounting model of the business. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I always think economics is sort of a bit more abstract, isn't it? I mean, this, this is this is real world stuff. It's oh yeah, definitely. it's 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 probably using some of the numbers that that people in an industry would would understand already. But yeah, just trying to put it into a, a model to be able to build a few scenarios. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I always used to do in all the businesses I had. I had a simple model, even if it was a PLC and you had to have some huge, great spreadsheet that nobody really understood, you know, which you put all of the f- assumptions in for every week and, you know, every site and all the rest of it. I'd always come back to a, a simple model for the whole thing just to think, okay, th- does this really look right? You know, mm. do those ratios look right? And for a small business, They've probably got nothing that this replaces. You know, they, they probably don't have a, a something just like it's like a mental model, isn't it? It's the, the basis of a mental model, really, to, to get straight in your head where you need to be. Mm. Yeah. I and My daughter has recently disposed of a coffee shop and bakery. Um, oh, yes. I always had a mental model of that business that simply had what, four or five numbers in it. It was kind of, okay. Here's the chunk of money that you need to cover your rent and your basic utilities costs. Here's the next chunk of money that you need to cover your staff. Here's the next chunk of money that you need to cover your raw materials and go into all the food you produce. Right. We know roughly what each three of those are. 
Right. Anything else you earn is yours. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly that. And I, I used to work for um, a small chain of cocktail bars. And if I remember rightly, the, the rent rate service charge utilities were about 17%. Yeah. The, uh, forget the cocktails because they were different, but the food side of it, the raw materials were about 33%. And I think the the labour was about 25 Yeah. Um, yeah, I can still remember that. So that, that's the yeah, sort of thing. That to, makes it to, really, really straightforward. It's kind yeah. of more if you can actually put a number on there that says, fine, that chunk's £10,000, that chunk's £5,000, that chunk's £20,000. Okay, so your revenue now has got to be at least that amount just to cover costs. How much is that a day? How much is that a week? What have you got to be putting through that cash register? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it brings it all into fairly sharp focus in that, that very simple way. Yeah. Yeah. So, Faye, we mentioned step two very briefly. Tell me a bit more about step two. So in step two, generally looking at sort of larger businesses, so something that's maybe got to at least half a million, probably a million pound turnover, you tend to find that there's been a bit of uh, bit of spread in terms of the type of customer maybe or the or the services products that are delivered and just just trying to do a bit of classic sort of accounting really to to see if there's three if three so there's three revenue streams in the cocktail bar for example you know they did coffees they did food they did beer and wines and they did cocktails and the revenue on the cocktail the, the profit margin on the cocktails just beat everything else into the ground, you know. What you wanted to do was definitely concentrate on that area. But yeah. small businesses don't tend to have the reporting suites or, you know, reporting functionality to, to be able to break things down and realise that. They probably know that they're making a 25% gross profit or, or whatever it is, depending on where you draw the line. But nobody nobody's aware that it's actually 75% on cocktails and that's covering everything else. I don't know about small businesses not having the systems. I've worked in a few big businesses that don't have the systems. And I mm. remember one of the one thing that I really cut my teeth in. It must have been, gosh, it's 25 years ago now. I was working in ICI in the plastics business. I use this example frequently in the classroom. And I was business accountant for their polypropylene business. So we were making polymer and sending it out to all sorts of end customers. And we we must have had 50 or 60 different grades of polypropylene polymer, some more specialist than others. Business suddenly, for, for supply and demand reasons, went from a £20 million annual profit to a £20 million annual loss. So it was either the instruction from head office was, either you sort this out, guys, or we're closing you down. <laughs> yeah. And now, when we started looking at which customers and which products actually made money and which didn't. It was astounding the number of loss-making products that we'd had and never really realised it because of all of the product service costs, customer service costs, product development costs. You could look at the idea of, well, there's a selling price. Here's what we get for a tonne of polypropylene. Here's what the, the input of propylene gas does going manufacturing process oh look nice big margin but then once you say oh hang on a minute we developed this particular grade to go specifically to the molder who's making a little widget to go in the bottom of a can of guinness 
And we spent hours upon hours in the semi-technical plant playing with grade formulations to make sure the thing had the right amount of slip in it. So it stayed shut when the ring pull was down on the can. It burst open and released the gas into the beer when you pulled the ring pull. And we spent all those thousands upon thousands of pounds on that. How much of that product are we ever going to actually sell? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that... It looked on face value like a, a super fancy, high margin grade of plastic. But when you put the development costs onto it, it was never, ever going to make a profit. And there but, were just, just loads of examples of that sort of thing. Oh. Yeah. But at least it wasn't complete loss because I love Guinness. So I'm, I'm really glad that you did. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, it, was a, it was a really successful product. Yeah. <laughs> you very soon come to realize that actually, Generally speaking, 80% of your profit comes from 20% of your customers. Yeah, no, it's definitely true. I mean, that, that's why I called my company Pareto yeah. in the first place, because it, uh, well, there's a couple of reasons, but that's, that's definitely one of them. As a sort of fractional CFO, that's what you've got to do. You've got to quickly identify the 20% in, mm-hmm. in everything and, and try and build on those bits. Yeah, we, there's a book, a guy called Jonathan Burns wrote a book called Islands of Profit in a Sea of Red Ink, I think it was called. Yeah. And he did 20 years research into this. He said that across you know, different geographies, different clients, different sectors, different products, however you split your revenue, you've always got this small section that's making mm. all the profit. Yeah. And the other bits are just, you know, make, well, not even making up the numbers sometimes. They're actually dragging you down. I think what I learned was that there are there are two 20% to, to think about. There's 20% of your customers who are probably generate 80% of your profit. But at the other end, there's probably 20, and a different 20% of your customers who are the ones that are dragging all the cost with them, that are constantly complaining, have constantly got issues that you need to resolve, are taking all your sales team's attention and things like that, that you you really ought to all the time be looking to bottom slice somehow. They're that 20% of your customer base. Yeah. Get rid of it and you'd find life was a whole load better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's partly what that second step's doing. It's sort of saying that, that this is the bit you should focus on, but also, and just as you say, that bottom bit that's where all the problems are. And often it's because the company's trying to do something that it's not really set up for. You know, yeah. the, the clients don't really. It's a bit like the, you know, the, uh, know, so the, the, the Asian food restaurant that tries to suddenly decides it's going to do burgers as well or something, or a burger restaurant that suddenly decides it's going to do a bit of Asian food. It's, it's always going to be a problem. It's yeah. never going to grow very big. Yeah. The, the staff are never going to understand it. The chef's never going to be very good at cooking it because it's not what he does every day. And the generally, people aren't going to turn up there to buy it because that's <laughs> not what they're expecting. <laughs> well, no, it might, yeah. I've uh, got the Rowan Atkinson Indian waiter sketch playing in the back of my mind when the drunk party turn up and one guy, uh, uh, rather than asking for the curry, asks for a McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Those 20% really, really interesting. I mean, I also recall reading a book, and I'm struggling to remember the title, but I'll put it in the show notes. The author is Perry Marshall, and his thing was to take your 20% and then do another Pareto on that 20%. Yeah, I've seen that done before. And that was really, really fascinating. That's saying, okay, 20% of your customers produce 80% of your profit. Now, let's have a look at the amount of profit that the 20% of the 20% produce. 
or you know, in the sort of model that we've got in Grow CFO, where you've got a, a big freemium model. Now, we always reckon that out of our membership base, 80% would always be free members and haven't paid for anything. 20% would be the paying members. But then there's a 20% of the 20% that will buy your super premium product. Yes. Yeah. And there's, there's something in there, I think, about remembering that little group of people are always going to be super fans and whatever you produce, they're going to buy it. So you've got a hundred pound product. You've got your thousand pound product. Have you got a 3000 pound product for your super fans? Because they buy the super deluxe version or the gold plated version or the limited edition version of anything. Yeah. So so, so long as it's value for money. Absolutely. Yeah. So step three. Step three having understood the business and where the profit comes from, it's just all about forecasting, really. Yeah. It's, another, it's another thing that I think small businesses don't do very well, don't necessarily see the point, unless it's for some sort of financing program, you know, where they've got to put together a forecast for the bank or something. Yeah, I, just trying to, I was trying to simplify it and say, you know, you don't, you don't have to spend days doing this every year. But if you really understand that model from part, uh, step one, just build on that and see see what happens if you – you just increase a few things by 5% each year if you can do that, or the compounding effect of rate and volume over three years can be can be yeah. enormous. But you've also got to think about everything else that's going along. You know, your, your offices might not be big enough. Your IT system might fall over. Doing your accounts on a spreadsheet probably isn't going to be feasible. Yeah, yeah just trying to get people to think about, about growing, because I've seen a lot of businesses get to a certain level, and the one person that's in charge gets to a capacity and, and it can't grow much more and they sort of try a few things and often they don't do that well and the profit might even go down. It's a question of taking some time out and standing back from the business and thinking, okay, what have I got to do? Yeah, I think that area of business growth and where you hit the constraints is a fascinating one because as you say, you, you can grow fairly successfully until bang, the office is too small or bang, the IT system doesn't cope with it anymore. I suppose a, a real limiting factor is the one you just mentioned, the the business owner that is a business owner as opposed to a CEO. I yeah. think there's a big difference between those two roles. A business owner tends to be doing everything or be having everybody report to them, where the CEO will, will surround themselves with some very good people. Yeah, quite, quite, often people quite different better than themselves. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's a lesson I learned. I was, I was involved with a guy who was a serial entrepreneur and uh, we set up two businesses. And right from day one, his thing was to, to employ people that were better than him in every function. Yeah, because then you can step away from it. Well, he, he never stepped into it. He never really did. Yeah. Because he, he'd done it before, seen how it didn't work. I think the second yeah. time he'd done it better, this was the third or the fourth time, and, and then the fifth, I think. Yeah, he just knew. He needed a, a, a really good sales marketing person. He needed a really good operations director. And then he, he lucked out and got me as the CFO. But, you know, there's three people who were specialists you know, mm. in areas that he wasn't. But yeah. he, he brought the whole thing together, yeah. uh, stepped in and out as he needed to, but, but never really did any day-to-day stuff. Yeah. Yeah, interesting lesson. Another thing that you mentioned there was the, the 5 and 10% improvements and the compounding effect of them. I think that, that's something really interesting to look at. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I probably first thought about it. There was a, there was a government program called Growth Accelerator. Do you remember that? 
I do, um, yes. So there was government money available to for, for people like me and, and you maybe to sort of, I think we had to do a bit of training and then, then we would, were available to help businesses. And what they were looking at was, what looking for, was businesses that were going to double in size over three years, I think, which sounds quite a lot when you when you sort of just sort of say it. But if you think, you know, a lot of businesses aren't pricing as well as they could be, you know, whatever their individual unit prices is, is perhaps not great. So you could move that up and then sort of growing the volume. Whilst you're doing that, if you can improve gross margin a little bit as you would, and perhaps the the, the overheads aren't going to aren't going to grow too too high. Might be certain points where you you know you do need the new office or the new factory if you are manufacturing. I don't really get involved in that. Modeling those sort of improvements for smaller businesses. Mm. That's what got me started to think about that. I think many it was about ten years ago, wasn't it? I think that, that yeah. Program, yeah. And I recall having a, a guest on my other podcast, the Next Hundred Days, which is much more of a a business than a finance show to an Australian called Pete Williams. He'd written a book called Cadence. And it was one of those, I, I love this type of business book where rather than just being sort of factual and take you through a methodology, it's a story going on. And the main characters, are, there was a owner of a bike shop and he had a client that was coming along to him because he offered training as well as his client was going for an Ironman. So he was, he was coaching. But the, it turns out the the guy going for the Ironman was a bit of a business guru. So the trade-off is that while the training for the Ironman's going on, he's helping the bike shop owner turn right. his business around. And you know, it's all about those 10% wins. Pete, when he came on the podcast, gave the, a great example to get your head around to the shoe shop. You know, you've got suspects. The people that kind of look right, look through the window and so on. Then you've got prospects, the people who come in and pick a shoe up and try it on. Then you've got sales, the people who take the shoe to the counter actually buy it. And his argument was, well, hang on a minute. You've got a conversion right there, prospects to sales. So what happens if you can increase that conversion rate by 10%? Uh, okay, you've got prospects. Well, what happens if we get 10% more prospects in? rather than the suspects just looking through the window. What happens if we can get 10% more suspects? Okay, so, well, there's three different 10%. Oh, sale. What happens if we can get them to buy two items instead of one? So the shoe shop example is, would you like a jar of polish to go with that? Uh, Okay, next 10%. What about, that's one sale we've made. What can we do about increasing the return rate of these existing customers? And he proved that by simply increasing and in the book, it's all worked out into a lovely model, increasing each of these things by 10%. I think he got about a 60% increase in bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's folk do think, oh, double the business. That sounds difficult. Change something by 10%. No, that's relatively easy. Yeah. And it's, I think it's sort of, there's a scale of, of ease as well, isn't there? I think it, it's easy to move people up to a different price point, current customers up to a different price point. Less easy, but but in the middle somewhere is getting them to buy more often. Yeah. But actually getting the new clients, that, that's the more difficult bit. And, and often, you know, where you have to spend a lot of money on, on sales and marketing. And But that's where people often think that's what they've got to do. Whereas starting at the different end is, is a better a better strategy. Right. I don't know about you, but um, via cold email and cold contacts on LinkedIn, 
I would say 90% of them will come along and say, oh, here's a new lead generation system for you to try out, thinking the only way you're going to grow a business is more leads. Well, actually, I disagree with that. That's seven ways you want to grow your business. I think as a result of all those folk, people put far too much emphasis on lead generation these days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's step three, Andy. Step four. So step three. So at the end of step three, you've got this lovely plan. And if you if you leave it in the bottom drawer, it's going to do absolutely nothing for you. So step four is to try and make sure that that plan's executed. And there's two elements to it, really. One is a dashboard of types, monitoring probably half a dozen KPIs, sort of specific areas of the business that uh, you need to keep on top of to, to achieve that growth. Probably as important, maybe more important, is some sort of mentor, somebody to keep you accountable. Yeah. So most, most people who are running a business of this size, there is no one they can talk to in the business, really, because everybody is has an employee mindset. It's not the same, you know, it's not the same thing. So having somebody outside the business that they can talk to, a CFO is, is, is ideal, a, a part-time CFO, but it could also be somebody who would run a business. The guy I mentioned a minute ago, the, the serial entrepreneur, he, he'd be ideal because he's sort of, he could help with all, all parts of the business. Yeah. But just someone who understands your plan will help you stay accountable and stick to it, not go off at a tangent. Or if you do, make sure you've gone through the hoops of this is this is what you need to do. And just so that you you know that if it's not going well halfway through the month, you know, you've got that conversation in two weeks' time, you've got to do something, you know. Yes. What what what, yes. what are you gonna do just to make sure you haven't got a difficult conversation? I think that accountability thing is a big one. I think it's um, huge, yeah. Yeah, huge. But I also think that the KPI one is quite vital as well. Some of that, and I, I'd flip back to that previous thing we were talking about, those little 10% increases. How do you increase something by 10% if you don't know what the number is at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to have some measurement there. Yeah. And if you are trying to move something on by 10% during the year, you know, it's less than 1% a month, isn't it? So yeah. if you compound it down. So you're not going to know whether you're making it or not just mm. by looking at the big numbers. You need to pull yeah. out whatever that is, mm. map it, see, mm. see what you wanted and measure it against what you're achieving. Absolutely. And the, the, the small numbers really do matter. Mm. I think sometimes as well, you've got to think about, well, okay, that's the number I want to shift. But what drives that number? What drives the thing that drives that the thing that drives that number? And go back and say, well, okay. Perhaps the absolute result isn't the thing I want to measure. It's something else. Yeah. 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 So it's underlying one of the uh, things that we measure in uh, in an architect's practice where I, I've been working for a long time. I've had to work in quite a few architect's practices. It's, quite, it's a model I quite like. It's quite simple in terms yes. of I don't, the work they do isn't simple. I couldn't do that. Mm. But the accounting side of it is. And you have the sort of revenue per head is an industry number that, that people talk yeah. about. But of course, like you say, if that goes wrong, you need to understand what's behind it. Well, the two things that are probably behind it are what's the efficiency, you know, how many, how much work is each individual actually doing, which, which yeah. might come down to hours. I'm not a great one for counting hours, but it might come down to looking at how many hours. But also the price, you know, are you estimating sufficient per job? And if you assumed it was going to take three people two months to do it, did it take five people six months to do it? Yeah. So I've seen a few jobs that did. 
Yeah. I think, yeah, that sort of thing, then the architect's model goes to a consultancy practice model. Exactly. That's exactly the same. And we always worked on the idea that everybody should be busy and providing focus support 70 or 80% utilized. 80% of the time is billed. We'll make a big profit. And we went through a merger and the reporting wasn't quite right in one half of the business. And suddenly we realized the forecasts we're putting together were massively overstated. And the reason turned out to be that that all these folk in the part of the business that that had been acquired all seemed busy, all seemed to have clients, but they were all sold out on bits of work that that kind of involved a a three-day-a-week rather than a five-day-a-week use to the client. And selling the other two days was almost impossible. Somebody in sales thought they'd done great job selling all these little bits of consultancy, keeping all the team busy, but they hadn't realized in the process of selling all that work that actually what they'd done was building a huge inefficiency into the team of days that couldn't be sold. So measuring some of those leading indicators rather than lagging indicators, I think it's vitally important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we go back to the um, the accountability side of it as well. Um, I mean, I, I've been involved in accountability from a, a few different angles, you know, coach, mentor, peer accounting. What I was trying to sort of put forward really was, was a bit like a school governor, really. I think the, the idea of the school governor is that you're the critical friend and that's exactly it. No point in saying, oh, well done all the time. It, it's more about, you know, could you have done better here? What how are the uh, the new sales in the in the new geographic region going? If it, it's something that doesn't get brought up at the beginning of the meeting, probably because it's not going too well. Yeah, I think the great CFO is the person that's got sort of just that that little eye for detail, and can somehow manage to pick out that really awkward question. <laughs> yeah. I've seen some good examples of it that. Uh, and we, we had a particular partner like that back in PwC, and you take her a business case, which you thought was watertight. And Caroline just had this knack of spotting the one little detail you hadn't thought through, or you hadn't got quite right, and tear the whole thing apart as a result of it. <laughs> but it didn't have to keep you on your toes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're trying to second guess all the time, but you, you'd never do it, will you? No, never do it. <laughs> never do it at all. Yeah. So, Process of writing, writing the book, how did you find that? I found it very interesting, quite time-consuming. Obviously, I'm a numbers person, not a word person, really. So I think the previously the biggest piece of writing I'd probably done was a, a some sort of essay when I took my exams sometime in the 80s, probably. So it took a bit of time, but, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of help out there, a lot of books and a few apps, and the thing to do is to just do little and often. I actually dictated most of it onto word i found that the easiest way to do it so i came up with a structure sort of chapter structure then points within each chapter so i sort of mapped it out a bit bit like step three really planning you know what what, what it is and then just talked about each bit and then 50 percent of that was probably rubbish so you then change it around a bit and maybe move the, the order of things and it does help to get the process straight in your own head though i did definitely find that it's very useful yeah so how successful has the book been? Well, I mean, it's not supposed to be a, a bestseller. The, the idea is no, more to give it away than to, to sell it. So yeah. I've had some some great reviews on uh, on Amazon. You know, a couple of them are from people that I that I know, but not all of them. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite a sort of a 
conversation opener to send someone a book and say, you know, if you knew someone had a particular issue with with profitability or something, you know, you could send it to them and say, have a read particular chapter two or something. And I, I did hear a stat a little while ago. I actually went to a, a book launch a couple of weeks ago from a chap called Michael Heppel, who's just launched a book called Write That Book. So he, oh, he, launched, yes, his, he launched his own book at the keynote event in a book festival, which I thought was a rather clever little ambush of the festival. Yeah. But Michael was on stage, and one of the facts that he put across was, well, the average book only sells 200 copies. Yeah. So you're never going to make – you decide to write a book, you're never going to make a fortune. But it is it is that calling card, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, it's a piece of marketing. I mean, there's a, there's a theory that I've heard of that says that if you want to be the go-to person in your industry in this day and age, is it Zed Mott? Is it the, the Google thing? There's got to be sort of seven hours of your videos or books or whatever around of people to, to get to know you before they're yeah. even going to approach you. So, I mean, it was part of that as well. But, yeah, it's, it, I mean, you say 200, 250 was the most, was it? I mean, that's how many author copies I got yeah. originally. So um, I haven't even sent them all out yet, but they are slowly being sent out. Yeah. <laughs> and then I could buy a few more. So I think it depends what are you going to do with the book. If you've, hmm. if you've written a piece of fiction, well, are you going to order 200? Possibly not. You're possibly going to do more of a print-on-demand model. If you're using it as a as an authority piece, well, 200 is probably not a bad number because you're, you're probably not even interested in selling many of them. You're, you're interested in, in sending them to potential clients as your calling card. Yeah. I think there's been more sold, actually, as, um, as Kindle versions. Yeah. So in the Kindle versions, I, mean, I think the price is something like £10 for the book and £2.00. 50 or something for the for the Kindle. So so easy these days, isn't it? And it's it's a very short book. I mean, it's deliberately something you could read in one sitting. You know, it's uh, it's not a big book. So it probably probably suits Kindle very well. Jack, I think is a good idea these days. Because one message we've had all the time around building courses in CrowCFO where you probably think, well, okay, we've got to satisfy people's CPD needs. We've got to make big courses. We've got to make sure they take hours to do. And then people come back to us and say, actually, no, we want things we can do quickly. We don't have time. Yeah. Time is a precious thing. I actually think the book that that doesn't overdo lots of stories and things like that has a few stories in because we learn from stories, but yeah. doesn't deliberately go and sort of turn 100 pages into 200 is a darn good idea. I remember reading an Edward de Bono interview. I think he wrote a book called Simplicity. And he said that ideally he'd have written it under under 100 words that the publisher demanded that it was 200 plus because that was the right <laughs> size for a business book at that time, yeah. which is just bizarre, yeah. isn't it? It's bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. And I, like, like you, I'd much rather read the book that you know, maybe you can get through in four or five hours than it mm. takes weeks. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and you can still remember the bit at the beginning when you're reading the bit at the end, and it, it exactly. sort of comes together, hopefully. And if you want, you know, so you just have to put some other things out there then, don't you? If somebody wants to read a bit more, you just need to make other things available in specific uh, specific topics. Yeah. I suppose that the classic example of that book as a marketing aid is why are you and I sitting here this afternoon talking to each other? Because you've written a book. Yes, that's true, yeah. 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 So the, the, the word author... 
theoretically someone of authority. Somebody um, of authority. Um, worth, worth listening to. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll let your listeners decide whether that's true or not. <laughs> yeah. So the million-dollar question, would you write a second book? Well, I have, actually. Ah, um, so needed question. Yeah, the, <laughs> I mean, the first book has got this little little case study running through it, which was the the book uh, startup that I told you about, the the MOD tender. Years that was years and years ago. I was involved in this this business with uh, the serial entrepreneur David that I've mentioned, and it was literally a business that he designed it. We set it up and we sold it within five years, and we got a good multiple. Fifty people. The big there were two businesses, but the bigger one was going you know, to got from not to fifty people, and. It was very profitable as well whilst we had it. So I just thought this, there's got to be a story there somewhere. There's, there's got to be, you know, why why was that business built so quickly and got to that point? And so I tried to distill it down to sort of four four elements. They're not steps, but they're sort of four elements, which isn't the whole story, but four things that people could actually concentrate on and change to make their businesses more profitable and to grow to grow quickly. Went through it with him as well. So. I have drafted it. It's only it's it's only about half the size of a book, so I, I need to add some more material to it, even to make it a, a small book. But, yeah, um, yeah, it's a project that's slightly stalled, but when I get a bit of time, I'll finish that off because I, I did enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it more the second time. Actually, it was so much easier. Yes, uh, to, you kind to of know time. What, what you're up against, what you're doing, and so on. You yeah. do, don't you? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Made less mistakes, I think. We'll have to have you back on the podcast again when it's published. Or not get on with it, whichever way you're taking the way this interview's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Always positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Andy, thank you for being this week's guest on the Growth CFO Show. Thank you, Kip. I've really enjoyed it.